0: All right, before we take a look at verse 6 and following this afternoon, I wanted to give an opportunity to have you ask any questions you might have on the Athanasian Creed. I had given it to you for your edification. I didn't know whether there were any questions you may have had in the reading of it. If so, then I'll be glad to respond to those. not, then we'll take a look at the Agora, which has been reconstructed at Laodicea. <clears throat> you have that handout there on top of your packet. We talked about Laodicea last week, one of the three cities in the Lycus Valley that is mentioned by the Apostle in this epistle to the Colossians, Colossae Colossi being one of the other two, and Hierapolis the third. now for those of you who are crossword puzzle fans the word Agora usually occurs as a marketplace clue <clears throat> and that is true the Greek word and this is a Greek word Agora <clears throat> does refer to a marketplace but here if you uh, read through this article you'll notice <clears throat> in fact from the title that this is a sacred Agora where agora is being used as a gathering place, and here as a gathering place for worship, obviously pagan worship. And as you can see, it's quite extensive. In fact, it's one of the largest agora's they've ever unearthed, and it's a it's a unique, uniquely sacred one, or dedicated to the worship of the pagan gods, which they can tell from some of the. Fragments of the painting and the tiles that they've uncovered. You can see that they've restored some of the pillars and they intend to restore the whole site eventually so that you will be reminded of the wealth of Laodicea. Now, if you turn to Revelation chapter 3, where the church of Laodicea is addressed by the risen Lord Jesus, You will notice that it is the church which is lukewarm in his sight. And it is lukewarm because, verse 17 of Revelation 3, it claims to be rich. As you can look at that agora, obviously there was great wealth in Laodicea. You have become wealthy, and there was great wealth in Laodicea, as you can tell from that picture. But... You are miserable, wretched, poor, and blind, and I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. The language there of the risen Lord's address to the church at Laodicea, which is in decline, in a decline into tepid Christianity, if there's anything left there at all, because he threatens to spit them out of his mouth because they are lukewarm, The contrast there is playing upon this imagery of the wealth of Laodicea that you see depicted on this uh, picture and also in this article. It takes a lot of money to do what was done there, and, of course, it's costing a lot of money to restore it. Now, another thing I'd like you to note is the second paragraph of this article, which talks about the head of the Laodicea excavation at Pamukkale University. <clears throat> now, that's a word that we used uh, to describe the city of Iropolis uh, because it's the modern name for that city. And that word Pamukkale means cotton castle because of the calcium carbonate, the white calcium carbonate that comes up from the thermal springs that are there at Pamukkale or ancient Hierapolis. Hierapolis was a a, uh, spa-type health restoration center. People came from all over Asia Minor to soak themselves in the hot springs of the baths there, and so that name has been taken by the university. In that modern Turkish city by that name. So there's a name you're familiar with, and you understand a little bit of the background. Of uh, <clears throat> here's Hierapolis, ancient Hierapolis, supervising the excavation of its neighbor to the south, namely Laodicea, uh, both of which names appear in the Epistle to the Colossians, and of course. Part of background to the language of Revelation 3 is reflected in the site that you see here on the picture. Yes, Randy? So the word palmukale means cotton. Cotton castle. Cotton castle. Because of the whiteness of that calcium carbonate as it, as it dries spilling over the edges of the thermal springs and can be seen from a great distance as a matter of fact it's quite bright. Any questions about that? Well, it ties into uh, what we had talked about last week briefly. So, now to Colossians 1-6. The phrase, in all the world here, is a reference to... Every place where the gospel had come to men, women, and children by the time Paul has written this epistle. In fact, Paul himself has been instrumental in bringing the gospel in all the world or in every place where he had traveled through the world. Where are some of those places where he had traveled? Well, he obviously had preached the gospel in Judea and in Palestine. Where else had he brought the gospel in the world name a few places that you're familiar with Greece very good because the Corinthian church where Macedonia Macedonia, yes and what cities there Thessalonica. Thessalonica would be one good where else he's writing to a church where Mostai, where is it? Modern in modern-day Turkey, called what in Paul's day? Asia Minor. Asia Minor, so he's planted a number of churches in Asia Minor. <coughs> Anywhere else? There Ephesus, his will include Ephesus with Asia Minor. The whole, wherever he we went in Asia Minor. <laughs> Rome, yes, very good. That's in uh, uh, Macedonia. He never went to Africa. never went to Africa. One country where he was converted. To Damascus. Where's Damascus? It's still there. In Syria. In Syria. And finally, one other place that he wanted to go to. And may have actually gone to, but we can't prove it one way or the other. Spain, Spain, correct. In Romans 15, he indicates that he wanted to go to Spain and he would stop in Rome on his way there. Of course, he (coughs) didn't get to Spain on that trip, but (coughs) there is a tradition that he was released from his first imprisonment and then did reach the western part of the Mediterranean Basin, perhaps Spain, before his second arrest and execution in Rome. <clears throat> that would allow the pastoral epistles to be written during that period between the first and second imprisonment of the apostle. That's, <clears throat> that's a suggestion uh, that's highly debated and controversial, uh, partly because most liberals don't believe he wrote the pastoral epistles because he was already dead under the first imprisonment. That's a topic for dealing with the pastoral letters. <clears throat> At any rate, um, this is not an exercise in hyperbole on the apostles' part. It's just an interesting, in, in enforcing or emphasizing the fact that where he goes about in the world, he is preaching the gospel as he goes. Pagan world, Gentile world, as well as the Jewish world, those whole worlds are hearing the gospel, verse 5, which is touching hearts in those places as it touched hearts in Colossae, touching hearts with life in Christ Jesus. Grace in all the world coming through him and in him. Grace to those in all the world who are loving him. Grace to those in all the world who are believing on him, who are hoping in him, who find the truth and peace in him. These hearts and souls and lives in all the places of the world where the Apostle Paul preaches and the Holy Spirit as at work brought to him, brought to Christ, precious, sweet union with Jesus Christ God's beloved son. Notice verse 13. The narrative which came to Paul himself has come to the Colossian Christians and that narrative continues to come and is coming to men, women, and children in all the world in our day. Thousands of missionaries, Spreading the gospel of new life in Christ Jesus. Millions of witnesses in all the world to the truth of the gospel in God the Son. The Colossians are part of the universal spread of the gospel of saving grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we too are part of that narrative. So in all the world is a reference to the way in which Paul had promoted the gospel, preached the gospel, testified to the gospel in all parts of the world where he sojourned, traveled, (coughs) and was directed by God the Holy Spirit to plant his churches. (coughs) Now in verse (coughs) 7, we have the name Epaphras. And what can you tell me about Epaphras that you've already learned? Or what do you know about him? He housed the church in Colossae. He? His house was the church in Colossae. Not his house. Or his wife's house. Not his wife's house. But since you brought it up, whose house was it? Oh. Philemon. Yeah, I It's guy. Philemon's house. Okay, so, how does Epiphras figure here? He was in prison with Paul. He's in prison with Paul now. Okay, true. he may have been the one to bring the gospel to Yes, I think he did because the verse says he learned it from Epaphras. So, this suggests that Epaphras was the immediate first hand uh, <clears throat> reporter or proclaimer, or teacher, or even preacher, for that matter, of the gospel in Colossae, uh, though that doesn't necessarily mean that he was ordained as a preacher. is something he took as a matter of his own witness. <clears throat> All right, now if you turn to verse 12 of chapter 4, you'll find out something else about Epaphras. What does that verse tell you? Yes, he is with Paul. The phrase who is one of your number. What did that tell you about evidence? To the church of yes, he belongs to the church of Colossi, but he's also a Colossian himself. He's one of your number. He's a hometown boy. You know him face to face. So Paul receives the reflection of the Colossians in Epiphras. This is how Paul knows how he has heard, how he understands that the gospel has come to the Colossian Christians because Epaphras has told him. Epaphras has been the mirror reflection of the narrative of how the gospel took root in this town and how it has spread into the regions round about, particularly Laodicea and Hierapolis. So Epaphras is a crucial part of the narrative, of the drama that's behind the letter to the Colossian Christians. He's the one who is the narrator. He is the one who's telling the story to Paul and and producing Paul's response in this epistle. All right, now what about that word learned there? This is a very strong word in the Greek related to the word for disciple or discipleship because it includes a very serious approach to learning the knowledge of the gospel. Serious understanding of the word of truth. A serious teaching of the Old Testament scriptures and the narrative of the life biography of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, this is a powerful word which is not about superficial knowledge. It is not about casual learning. It is not about being instructed at the surface level. That's not what Epiphras was about and that's not what the Apostle Paul was about In the final analysis, this word suggests a firm and deliberate content, perhaps even a systematic content with respect to the gospel meaning and message. We might even suggest a catechetical content, namely a outlined approach in terms of about patterns or heads of doctrine, as one might put it in uh, more modern terms. They had learned the gospel. They had been trained in the gospel. They had perhaps even been catechized in the gospel with very serious uh, depth and penetration. Why? Because the gospel was displacing and replacing a whole system of religious belief in their consciousness and a whole lifestyle in their awareness. The gospel was changing their whole outlook on the world, their Weltanschauung, their philosophy of life. The gospel was not simply a incidental matter. It was clashing with everything they had been taught from the time they were children. It was clashing with a great deal of everything that was around them in their culture. It was clashing with their lifestyle and their former personal belief system. That meant that they had to be serious and seriously instructed to learn why Jesus Christ makes a difference. To learn why Christian behavior and morals and ethics makes a difference. To surrender what they had been bound by, what they had been (coughs) persuaded of, what they had devoted themselves to, how they had even walked in ways upon the streets of Colossae to learn how to do that now in such a way that they glorified the Lord Jesus Christ was serious business. And they had to learn what the Word of God said. Serious Learning of the Word of God, a deep penetration into the mind and heart of God as it's revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Well, did they have the New Testament? No, they didn't have the whole New Testament, but Luke is with Paul as he writes this letter to the Colossians. Is it possible that they had some pieces of Luke's gospel? Because Luke had written his gospel so that Theophilus would know all that was reported about the life of Jesus. Is it possible the Colossians received a bit of that? That, of course, is speculation on my part. But one thing is clear. They had to be instructed in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to be instructed in the meaning of that life. And they had to be instructed in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had to be instructed in the meaning of that death as they had to be instructed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these are not simply incidents of history. These are the things upon which all history turns for the Christian believer who is serious about life and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the mere surface. Not the mere superficial approach. Not the entertainment or the ecclesiastical nightclubs of the modern evangelical world. But the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the riches of God in Christ Jesus. That's what the Colossians Devoured. That's what they were hungry for. That's what they gave up their former pagan world view in order to embrace. Because Christ was life to them. Their pagan world was death and they knew it. For that pagan world had nothing but a death wish about it. And that is the hallmark of all paganism. All paganism lives with a death wish. And if you don't believe it, watch your TV news from the streets of your culture today. For you are in the grasp of neo-paganism. Well, yes, Randy. You had an, example of an ecclesiastical nightclub, yeah. ecclesiastical nightclub is me with that term. yes. The ecclesiastical nightclub is the church as a form of entertainment, where worship is a form of uh, what you would experience in a nightclub. You have performers, uh, they can call them choirs, or they can call them soloists. Uh, <clears throat> you have uh, uh, motivational messages, uh, <clears throat> which virtually have nothing to do with the scripture text, except as a pretext. And <clears throat> so the point is that you are attracting people on the basis of the entertainment value of what you're offering, and it sells it's, uh, it's, there. Would, you, would you call Jimmy would you put him in that character? Yes, I would. As well as many others. <clears throat> but it is not about learning the deep things of Christ. It's not even uh, being identified with a body of believers that you know. Because it's a mass audience that you can know very few people about and no pastor in that audience can know everyone in the congregation, which is a reason once more that it's not what a Christian church of the New Testament is. It's too big. A megachurch isn't a church. It's a mega testimony to somebody's ego. Namely the guy that's in the center of the spotlight. Entertainment based? Yes. Program oriented? Yes. Substance, no. Enough for that peroration. The phrase servant of Christ here in this verse is a genitive of possession. And if you have a good memory, you remember that when we talked about Paul in verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ, we also indicated that that was a genitive of possession. So, here's Epaphras in the same relationship to Christ, grammatically speaking, as Paul is in the first verse. And that genitive of possession is a powerful grammatic relationship. It's not just grammar, it's personal. The genitive of possession indicates that as Paul was possessed by Jesus Christ in his apostolic role, so Epaphras is possessed By Jesus Christ in his servant role. The genitive of possession means Christ possesses me as I possess him. It means to belong to Christ in that mirror relationship, in that reciprocal relationship. In other words, my Lord Jesus Christ, you are mine and I am yours. There's the genitive of possession and epaphras shares that relationship with Christ even as Paul does even as every Christian does i am a a, a child i am a, a believer in the lord jesus christ i belong to the lord jesus christ because he possessed me he took me into belonging to him but that's The Reformed emphasis, I belong to him because he first took me into his possession. All right, now I'm underscoring this grammatical point because it's reciprocal. It's used of Paul in verse 1 and here it's used of Epaphras in verse 7 and that reinforces the narrative relationship between the two They both have the same story reflection of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. This is crucial, again, for understanding how Paul comes to write this letter. It's crucial to understanding the story behind the church in the letter. It's crucial to understanding that there's more here than just the words on the page or distilling doctrine out of the epistle to the Colossians. There's history and biography and narrative and drama in the background here, which comes out even in this genitive of possession, even in this what we might call minor grammatical point. And I should say, in concluding this comment, that it also belongs to the Colossian believers in that church. That genitive of possession describes them. They belong to Christ, even as Christ belongs to them. Now there is a uh, small textual issue here uh, in this verse. Some of your Bibles may have on the last line, faithful servant of Christ on your behalf. Do any of your Bibles have your behalf there? Yes, the ESV has it, following the UBS critical edition of the New Testament text. The NASB, the New American Standard, has our behalf here. And there is a variation in the manuscript evidence for the pronoun there. Well, Denison, what difference does it make? Well, it makes difference if it's not what the original, uh, what the original writing is. It's a difference if that's not what Paul wrote there. So, <clears throat> the point here is not just to, uh, <coughs> uh, split hairs, but the point here is to understand what the implication of whether our or your is in that, pa- in that place. Faithful servant of Christ on your behalf or faithful servant of Christ on our behalf? Let's begin with the oldest New Testament manuscript extant, namely P46, which I've mentioned before. The papyrus version that dates from about 150 A.D., according to Philip Comfort, who's provided a complete printed edition of it. I have it in my own library. P-46, the oldest Greek manuscript to date, has our in that text, not your. There are other manuscripts, older and more recent and newer, that also have our instead of your. There are, however, manuscripts that have your here. They are not as old as P-46, And that's one thing I place in favor of reading the word our there in that place and not your. But there's one other thing. Let's take a look at the implication of this phrase. In our place or in your place. It means on your behalf or as your substitute. Alright, right, so what's Paul saying? He's addressing Epaphras here in verse 7. We're addressing them by way of Epaphras. And he is saying that Epaphras is a faithful servant on our behalf to you. In other words, on behalf of us, Timothy and Paul and others, perhaps Luke, who I've already mentioned, is with him there in prison (coughs) on our behalf. He is representing us to you. He is substituting for us on our behalf to you. Now, go on to verse 8. And he has informed us of your love in the spirit. Now, there's no ambiguity in the text there. The your is in the text, the oldest text and consistently through the uh, Greek text that we have. So there's no challenge there. So the your in verse 8 would be on your behalf as a substitute for you. So notice the interesting mirror reflection again, the interesting narrative paradigm. On our behalf in verse 7 is Epaphras acting as a substitute on Paul's behalf. He is the very representation of Paul to this congregation, whereas in your place, Epaphras is a substitute for the Colossians on Paul's behalf. And there's your perfect mirror. If it's our in verse 7, it is Epaphras on Paul's behalf. If it is your in verse 8, it is Epaphras on the Colossians' behalf. The mirror solves the textual confusion. The mirror unfolds the harmony of that narrative reflection. Epaphras, you are my substitute when you go back to the Colossian Christians, even as you have been their substitute in bringing their Christian testimony to me. Notice the symmetry there. Notice The reflection, the two pronouns mirror one another on our and on your behalf because Paul and Epaphras are mirroring one another in terms of the Colossian church situation. All right, it may be a minor point, but I think that it is a minor point uh, perhaps better solved by a narrative proposal and solution. You may not be persuaded. <clears throat> Obviously, the ESV is not. It gives a footnote on it. Yes, it gives the footnote on it, but it takes the wrong reading. Well, I prefer the older text, and for the reason that I've outlined, I think it reflects the narrative of the relationship between Paul and Epaphras much more uniformly, much more concretely, much more holistically. Right now, in verse eight, we have a little bit of a bracket, and the bracket comes from a word that you find there, which you also find up in verse four. So what word do you find in verse eight that did occur in verse four already? in. No, something more substantive. That's true, but something more substantive. Yes, the word love. Now, you recall uh, last time we suggested a reason for dividing this Thanksgiving section, which extends from verse 3 to verse 12 into two portions, into two subunits. From verses 3 to 8, subunit number 1, and verses 9 to 12, subunit number 2. If this little bracket is substantial, I'm, su- I'm suggesting it is a clue, it binds together verses 3 and 4 or 4 to 8, justifying that two-fold division which we pointed out last time. In other words, this would be the end, the use of the word love here, would be the end of that first subunit which extends from verse 3 to 8. Yes, I think the paragraphing is correct in the Bibles that do have the paragraphing because they stop at verse 8 with the first paragraph. But I think there are justifications within the text for making that decision. All right, now, the Apostle uses one of his uh, in-phrases here. So let's review the in-phrases that are in Colossians, and then one from 1 Thessalonians, and i placed them in the Greek so that you can actually see the exact duplication of the prepositional phrase. Now, beginning with the first one on your sheet, this is Greek, that first letter on the left-hand side of the first word looks like the letter E in English, sometimes written that way, and in fact, we would transliterate it as an E in English, the second letter is N in English. So we translate that first word, N, which is the Greek preposition, which means in or on. So pronounced N meaning in or on. All right, now the first name in Colossians 1-2 after the N is the name for Christ in Greek. It'll be transliterated C-H-R-I-S-T-O, If you're going to spell it out. So there's en Christo, meaning in Christ. In Christ. Now the second phrase underneath en Christo is en, once again, means in, transliterated en, and then p-n-e-u-m-a-t-i-numati, which you can see if they spell it P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I, looks like pneumatic, and that's exactly what it would come over in English to be, like a pneumatic drill, a pneumatic uh, uh, a hammer, a, one of these pneumatic nail guns that uh, if you've got a new neighbor putting two shingles, put a new roof on, you hear hearing going, pat, 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 <coughs> all day long. Okay, so there's the Greek word pneumatic or pneumati, which means spirit. In the spirit would be the translation in English of that second phrase. And finally, en again, patri, P-A-T-R-I, in the father. Now, I've lined them up in order to indicate how the apostle underscores persons of the Godhead, with these prepositional phrases. He consistently uses the same pattern. He says, in Christo, in Colossians 1, 2, meaning in Christ, and raises the question, who is Christ? And the answer is, he is God. He is God the Son. Now, what about "in Numati? Who is the Spirit? What does it mean to be in the Spirit? Well, because he's using this construction and he's using the noun form here, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about being spiritual, which he will also talk about in the next verse, verse 9, and we'll comment on that in a minute. He's talking about in the Holy Spirit, who is God, once again, God, the Holy Spirit. And finally, in Patry, in the Father, Father is God, namely God the Father. So here is this sequence or here is this pattern that the apostle uses to refer to the persons of the Godhead with that prepositional phrase, in Christ, in the Spirit, in the Father. And it is a consistent pattern in his Greek vocabulary, in his Greek uh, uh, uh laying it out. So here, in verse 8, he is not talking about being spiritual or about the spiritual soul or the soul spirit of a human being. He is talking about the divine spirit. He's talking about the person of the Godhead. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And that reminds us once again that these names also imply relation. If there is a Father and a Son and the Holy Spirit, that implies not only different name, distinct name, but it also implies distinct relation. So here, when we begin with Christ the Son, with the end Christo, we've already discussed in verse 13 that he's the beloved. In John's Gospel, he's described as the begotten. That's his relation. There's his name, Christ, Son of God. His relation, beloved and begotten. With respect to the Father, as we discussed last time, there's his name, his relation is that he's the one loving. He's he's the one begetting. He's the one loving here in verse 13. He's the one begetting in John's gospel. Well, if he begets, then that means he starts him, he makes him, he creates him. Oh, no, 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 don't make the Jehovah's Witnesses' mistake. Jehovah's Witness' mistake is that they come to your door and say, yes, but it says he's begotten. That means that the Son of God is a creature. No, dear friend, Jehovah's Witness, that is not what the, the, what's going on. Because if God begets, he begets in accordance with his own nature. If a creature begets, he begets a creature. Is God a creature? God is not a creature. If God begets, he doesn't beget a creature. He begets God. God begets God. Simple. You get it? See, it's in accordance with nature. So the begetting of the Son of God is an eternal generation. It's an eternal begetting. He's being begotten. Even now, with respect to his relationship to his father, he will never be anything other than the only begotten of the father for all eternity. Mary Mary doesn't beget. She generates. (laughs) Holy Spirit begets in the sense that he produces that which comes into union with her. We're talking about the deity now. We're not talking about the incarnation. Uh, well, let's put it this way: the begetting is the act of conception or the moment of conception. Okay, that doesn't apply to Jesus in terms of a a normal human conception because he's born of a virgin. It's the Holy Spirit that stimulates that process in her. Though though we would though we would not label that the Holy Spirit begetting him. Glad I can keep you straight. I get crooked real fast. <laughs> All right. Now, finally, the name Holy Spirit, which is really the reason we're going into this broader discussion, <clears throat> is the one spirated. He is spirated by the Father and the Son. Or, to use John's language, and you know we appealed, we appealed to the Gospel of John several times in these comments about the Godhead. He is the one proceeding. John 15, 26. The comforter who proceeds from the Father comes forth from the Father and the Son. All right, so we have the name Christ, the son, and relation, his relation is one of filiation. That's what it means to be a son. The father, that's his name, and his relation is paternity. He's the paternal part of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit, that's his name, and his relation is spiration. Spiration, to be shall we say, breathe out of the Godhead. Now, I bring this up because there are versions of this verse which translate it with a small s, and so take the Trinity or the, the Godhead out of it. Consistent with what Paul does when he uses that N plus clause with respect to the persons of the Godhead, I'm arguing that he's talking about the Holy Spirit and the New American Standard has a capital S on there and other versions that you may have in your hands also do, but not all do. And that is a mistake, in my opinion, because an attempt to reduce the Apostle's testimony to the deity of the Holy Ghost. Any questions there? I agree with you, okay, but there are versions that do that. Right now, verse nine brings us to the shift in this section, and you'll notice that it's translated variously for this reason or because of this, and reminds us that we've come to the transition between the first part of this Thanksgiving, verses three to eight, and this last part, of this thanksgiving, verses 9 to 12, a thanksgiving which is included or inclusioed by verses 3 and 12, where giving thanks is is emphatic, is explicit. All right, so he's shifting. He's shifting from part A to part B of this thanksgiving section. For this reason, for what reason? For the reason that you have already received the work of the Holy Spirit, for the reason that you have already received union with Christ, you are Christ's possession, for the reason that you are already exposed to the knowledge and understanding, in fact, to the learned, the learned deep things of Christ, I want you now, verses 9 through 12, to go on. I want you to grow. I want you to increase. I want you to mature. You've already received these gifts. And we outlined the remember, in parallel columns last time. So you can go back to your notes from handout three and notice how we outlined the duplicate vocabulary between verses three to eight and verses nine to twelve. How Paul uses the same words over again. And the difference is, in verses 3 to 8, he's affirming what they've received, the gift that has been given to them in coming to Christ and the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of interesting that he ends up that section with the Spirit, with the Holy Ghost. All right, now in verses 9 to 12, he wants to build on that. He has encouraged them by affirming what they have received. Now, he wants to keep them focused on moving forward. He wants to keep them focused on growing and increasing in that. So, all that they have have gained by the gift of God's grace, in verses 3 to 8, in verses 9 to 12, he wants to support and encourage and stimulate. I saw a hand. Bob? Uh. You say because of this, and I look and it says "and so." Are you saying that the words "and so" are really because of this? Yeah, I'm saying it's 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 actually in the Greek. It's it's dia tuto which could be translate for this reason or because of this thing, or on this account. There's a, there's a variety of ways of translating it. But it would all refer to a kind of causal relationship. So when it says "and so," that really doesn't—that's causal. It's just—it's causal if you say "so" as "therefore." Yeah, it's just a milder "so." That not the And thus, it's a weaker. It's uh, it, 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 yeah, I think you're sensitive to the fact it doesn't have the same oomph. As for this reason or because of this, and that's correct and and i I think that even for this reason in the new American standard is weaker than because of this, which I think in my opinion this is my opinion, the Greek requires but I'm not going to quibble about that <clears throat> the The bottom line here is this is a causal sequence because you have three to eight reality you know, in Christ <clears throat> I want you to go on with nine to twelve reality in Christ. That's that's the point of the shift. <clears throat> and because this phrase is here at the beginning of verse nine in the Greek, we know he's turned a corner. He's, this is a rhetorical uh, this is a rhetorical device in which he says, "Okay, now I'm going on with what I want to encourage you to, to, do, to do." Does that make sense? No, and I'm on your side when it just says and so. That, that's, uh, that's pretty pitiful. But nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, we'll, we understand so means for this cause or so because of this, then, it's, then it strengthens it up. So, <clears throat> so it, it, it can be redeemed, only it would have been better to be more forcefully expressed time you say so, you're referring to something prior. Anytime you use the word.
1: Yes, um,
0: generally speaking. And so it's time for a break. Yes. Um. There you have it. <laughs> now, I've alluded already to the paraphrase here of verse 9, but let me uh, <clears throat> start this uh, second half hour with uh, a, a condensation of it. Because you possess the above, Paul says, and the above meaning verses 3 to 8. Because you possess that, we pray you may continue in and grow in it. What has been received by grace as a gift, we pray, may increase and grow stronger, richer, deeper, more precious, more sweet, tenderer as you are more and more filled with the knowledge and wisdom of God. Notice, it's filled with the knowledge and wisdom of God, which is going to promote this growth. (coughs) Knowing God more and more. Understanding the wisdom of God more and more, which means you have to be rooted and anchored in the revelation of God's knowledge and wisdom. And where do you find that? You find that in the scriptures. Or you find it in books which are talking to you about the meaning of the scriptures. Once again, these Colossians are, are serious Christian people. Paul knows that. He's already been told that. And he's encouraging them, having learned serious Christianity, he encourages them to keep on growing in it, to keep on pursuing the knowledge and wisdom of God as they pursue the revelation that God has communicated through him and this letter. For this is one of the most profound of the apostles' epistles, as we will see when we get to the Christ hymn in the middle of this chapter, this first chapter. We haven't even begun to deal with the problem that is at issue here in the second chapter. There are challenging issues here, deep spiritual, deep cultural issues here. So, keep in mind that Paul is responding to how they were originally catechized. And he's building upon what Epaphras had done on their behalf. Yes, Randy. When I first started reading it, is in modern evangelicalism, you read, you get that word filled. You wouldn't use the word synony- knowledge as a synonym, a synonym with filled in the modern evangelical sense. You get some kind of hairy-fairy filled thing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, well, with my tracking on this right. Well, the filling with the Holy Ghost or being filled with the spirit that type of thing tends to be an emotional expression. Yeah, right. You know, I'm not minimizing emotions in religious life, but that's not what the apostles talking about here, and I don't think he's even talking about that when he's talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. It's more of the, the filling is a knowledge thing. <coughs> and other things comes from that knowledge. Yes, and, and notice in verse 10, he's going to talk about their walk. So he wants them to be filled with a moral aspect, with a moral understanding. So he's talking about their ethics there, but we'll go into that in a moment. <clears throat> this being filled is a process. It's a growing process. <clears throat> it's a process which will come to full maturity in the glorification of the believer in heaven. Alright, now this emphasis upon keep on growing, keep on bearing fruit, etc. This emphasis here suggests that the fullness of the Christian life in Colossae may have been bastardized by the false teachers. That is, that the fullness of Christian experience may have been received in some other way than from the work of the Holy Spirit, some other way than from the work of Christ Himself, some other way than the work of God the Father. In other words, those who are promoting the false teaching in Colossae may have been advocating a fullness which is separated from the fullness which comes in Christ by the Spirit with the blessing of God the Father. His use then of that word here may be a subtle reflection upon an error which was being promoted in the, in the uh, Christian congregation there. Now, in this ninth verse, he uses that word spiritual wisdom. And it's the same uh, <clears throat> lemma or it's the same root form of uh <clears throat> of uh, the Greek, which we saw in Numati in verse 8. But there he uses the noun for the person of the spirit. And here he uses the adjective for spiritual orientation, for the heart or the soul being oriented in wisdom and in understanding. All right, now I alluded in verse 10 to the walk because the knowledge and wisdom he's advocating here is not merely intellectual. It's not a matter of the head, only it's a matter of the, 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 the body in the sense that he's talking about morality, how you behave, how you walk, how you work out in your behavior, in your moral character, in your ethics, what you know and understand of the wisdom of God. And notice that he uses a sequence in these verses of four participles, bearing fruit, increasing, being strengthened, verse 11, giving thanks, verse 12. These are all parts of not only that understanding in the intellectual sense of God's knowledge and wisdom, but also walking in that. Knowledge and wisdom. In other words, your ethical character bearing fruit, increasing your your morals are being strengthened, etc. And then finally, in this verse, he brings in the uh, the term good work or good works. Now, this is an antithetical device because he's talking about the moral character which is increasing in the knowledge and wisdom of God. So he's using good work or good deeds here as antithetical or opposite to something else. And you can find it in the 21st verse. So what's he placing good deeds or good works in opposition to in verse 21? Evil, Evil deeds, correct. Now, this is not the only place where he will refer to these evil deeds. If you turn over to verse 7 of chapter 3, he has provided a list of evil deeds in verses 5 and 7 and 8, or 8 and 9, I should say. But in the midst, in verse 7, he says, you also once walked in these evil deeds. So if you want to know the specifics about the evil deeds of verse 21, which stand over against the good work of verse 10, there's your litany. There's your list. That list in chapter 3 is a list of immoralities and perversions. But that is the pagan lifestyle. And the pagan concept of good deeds was that good deeds were meritorious deeds for the sake of pleasing the gods. You bring your gift, you bring your sacrifice, you bring your libation, you even enter into sexual intercourse and perversion to earn the favor of the gods. To deserve the favor of the pagan pantheon. Paul's gospel is the direct antithesis of this. It is the direct opposite of this. The favor of God Almighty is not earned or deserved, but it is freely given. And thus good works are reflective of the goodness of God. Good moral character in the Christian is a reflection of the good moral character of God. It is a heavenly ethic. It is an eschatological ethic. It is an ethic which is performed out of gratitude and love and obedience with no thought of earning or deserving a reward or a blessing. Delighting in the life of grace, free grace and unmerited grace is a joy and a delight. It is not a tit-for-tat. I do this, God, and you do this for me. You owe me if I do this. God owes you nothing. Even if you were perfect, he owes you nothing. Even if you were sinless, you couldn't earn anything from him because that's what you owe. He wouldn't give you any rewards for doing what you are supposed to do. You're still an unprofitable servant. I'm quoting Jesus there. So, the clash between Christian ethics rooted and grounded in a free grace system and a pagan system rooted and grounded in a works merit system is absolutely opposite. This is what the gospel confronted. This is what Paul... Is dealing with in Galatia. This is what he's dealing with in Rome. This is what he's dealing with even here in Colossae, implicitly, not explicitly. Because the gospel of grace is not a gospel of merit. It's not a gospel of earning or deserving or being worthy of. It's a gospel of receiving. Being gifted. Being loved. For Christ's sake, not for your sake. All right, so, <clears throat> the fact that he raises the issue here, and then he goes on in the third chapter to talk about it, alerts us to the fact, once again, Paul's gospel challenged that whole pagan worldview. He also challenged the Jewish worldview, which also was hung up, on living a good life for the sake of earning merits and reward at the end of the world. Christianity is replacing that worldview. Christianity is displacing that worldview. Christianity is saying, no, the gospel of salvation, the moral worldview is a worldview which is grounded and rooted in the free grace of God through Christ Jesus the Lord by the operation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Praise his triune holy name. Now, verse 11 alerts us to strong alternative forces. Powerful alternative forces, mighty alternative forces in the Lycus Valley, in the churches at Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. You read Revelation 3, and within 30 years of Paul writing this letter, the Laodicean church is in trouble. It is in deep trouble. It is virtually no Christian church at all anymore. 30 years Between 60 and 90 AD, it's that quick. The erosion corrodes and eats away at the gospel in that pagan culture. The pressure of the culture, the pressure of the environment, the pressure of the system, too much for the Laodiceans add to that the temptation of the wealth that was all around them, as you could see, from that uh, picture of that agora that we pointed out later uh, earlier on well because of those forces other forces must be brought to bear other strengths and power must be brought to bear what's needed for the believer in such a context to receive to walk in the strength and the power and the might of God's glory. Notice the words that he uses here. Strengthen in his glorious might. That is the might or the strength of God's glory. That is the might or the strength of that glory world of God. That is the might and the strength of the eschatological world and the lifestyle rooted in and united in Christ Jesus and his heavenly and his heavenly father the life that belongs to that world in might strength power and glory even now Amen. because that is the way you overcome the temptations of the devil that is the way you overcome the ingrained habits of your pagan lifestyle. That is how you overcome the the uh, peccadillos of your non-Christian past or the actual sins of your non-Christian past. You overcome them by knowing that you live before the face of God through Jesus Christ in heaven itself. And what are you going to do? Are you going to please him by the way you behave, by the way you act, Or as if you're standing in front of his face in glory or you're going to behave as one is going to please himself. It is the orientation of your perspective. This is what Paul is talking about. Even in chapter 3, he's going to say you've been raised up and seated. Now live out of that arena with your ethical character, with the way you behave, the way you act, the way you speak, the way you think. Out of heaven's dimension. This is revolutionary. Of course, the whole gospel is revolutionary. But this is an ethical revolution. This is a revolution of thinking of behavior and morals. Not in terms of the horizontal plane of the culture or the history in which we live. But out of heaven's own arena. And behaving as if you're standing face-to-face with Almighty God. Walking as if you were walking before the face of Almighty God, as if you're treading the golden streets of heaven itself in what you say and how you act, how you treat others and how you behave. An ethical revolution. We'll have more to say about that when we get to the third chapter because it's not only a revolution there, It's a transformation, and we'll want to observe how the apostle does that. All right, that brings us to verse 12 and this wonderful declaration that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, here we want to ask why Paul uses light imagery here. The saints in light. Why bring in that concept? Randy? One word, reflection. Reflection? Okay. Why did he even think why does he even think of it? All right, let's go back to the book of acts. <laughs> Chapter 9. Let's begin with chapter 9 verse 3. As Paul was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a what? A light from heaven flashed around him. On the Damascus road, Light is eschatological light. Light is light from heaven. Now, Paul refers to this event three times in the book of Acts. That's the first one. The second one is in chapter 22, verse 6. Let's take a look at how he describes that event in chapter 22, verse 6. It happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. Notice he's given an increased description of that light that he saw on the Damascus Road. It's a bright flashing light which out of heaven enveloped and surrounded him. This eschatological light folded him into the glory of that light. On the Damascus Road, Paul was folded into the light of glory. But he's not done. He talks about it one more time in chapter 26, verse 13. At midday, O king, and he's talking to Agrippa here. I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were sojourning with me. Now it's a shining light more brilliant than the sun. This eschatological light is the surpassing glory of God's very own heavenly dwelling place. Paul was given A vision of heaven. Paul saw on the Damascus Road the light glory, the glory light of heaven itself. The eschatological arena. Brighter than the sun? There is no light brighter than the sun, than the light of God himself in all his essential glory. And Paul saw that light on the Damascus Road. It stopped him dead in his tracks. It blinded him. but more than the light. In that light, the voice of the risen Jesus of Nazareth. Now, if the light didn't startle him enough, if the light didn't stop him from what he was about to do in Damascus, if the light didn't stop him, then the resurrection did. Seeing the Christ whom he was persecuting the Christ whom he thought was a fraud and a fake, the Christ whom he thought had been stolen by his disciples, the Christ who was alive stopped him even deader. Who art thou, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Christ Jesus whom you are persecuting. In that light on the road to Damascus, in that glory flash that eschatological flash of glory, the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth, and Paul is stopped, dead in his tracks. And in that heavenly blindness, the Son of God in the eschaton shines forth. Because Paul is blinded by that light, temporarily blinded by that light, by the Son of God, in the eschatological glory of his resurrection manifestation. And in that light, the destiny, the legacy, the inheritance, the sure and certain possession of the saints in glory in heaven, in the fullness of the risen and Lord Jesus Christ glorified. That was the beginning of Paul's story and he uses light here to indicate that that's the story that the Colossians had also inherited. It is their narrative story, though they may have never seen that light. Nonetheless, they are possessors of that light by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Randy. Yeah, the new. Amer- I'd have to look at the Greek. I didn't look at the Greek uh, in those places. I was just taking the New American standard. <clears throat> using It's using the word flash because it's an enhancement of the imagery of the light. <clears throat> in other words, as you go through the progression of his descriptions of that tra- uh, conversion experience, he expands upon the significance of the light, crucial to the change in him. N-A-S-B uses the word flash? It uses flashing, correct. Bright flashing light from heaven. So, two adjectives there. Yes, Ben. I have a note here from a previous study that I did. It says, it's a uh, in, in In 26 or in 22? Oh, in this verse. In the light. <laughs> Uh, yes, so it's, it's the light of glory, and I'm, I'm tracing it to Paul's experience of that light of glory. It so the light had to be even brighter than the sun. Good, yes, which is what he says in chapter 26, Acts 26. All right now, that uh, light imagery there. Uh, I've traced out in my article on Paul and Damascus Road. You have the first page of that in your handout. If you're interested in the full article, you'll notice the website address, krux.com, K-E-R-U-X.com. You can read the rest of it uh, if you're interested in pursuing that, that question. But this is not incidental. My point is the appearance of light imagery here. Is coincident with the apostles experience of light imagery. So he's drawing them into his narrative even as he wants them drawn into the narrative of the resurrection glory light of Christ. And that's where he wants you and me and all of his readers. Any questions? Well, let's close with prayer. That you would invite us into the unapproachable light of your ineffable glory, Lord. We are awestruck. We are prostrate in unbelief. How you could do such a thing for sinners such as we are. And yet it is a testimony of your word and it is the experience of your great apostle. Even as Peter, James and John saw that glory before the time on the Mount of Transfiguration. How you so wonderfully allowed your servants and disciples to possess that light, to see that light, to enter into that light, to be partakers of the light of the age to come. We treasure it by faith, Lord. It is a true gift of grace to us. We bless you for it in the risen glory light of our Lord Jesus. And we thank you that the saints in light possess it and continue in it forever and ever, O Lord May you receive glory, honor, and blessing forever and ever for being the light of this dark world and the light to our dark lives. We thank you for that glorious light and we rejoice in it through Jesus Christ our Lord, the light of the world. Amen.